Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you praying that our eyes, our ears, our minds will be opened in such a way that we will learn your word in a whole new way. Father, this is your word. You are speaking to us. Father, may we hear your voice clearly in order to obey it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we need to look at Leviticus chapter 10. And we covered a good deal of Leviticus chapter 10 when we were together last, but we just want to remind ourselves of a, of a few of the elements here. In the tragic case of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron who were killed by the Lord by fire because they had brought strange fire to the altar. Just reminding ourselves of this passage, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Let me just interject here. I bet they did. You have, as we are this far into Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu carrying censers with unauthorized fire into worship. The Lord's answer to the unauthorized fire was fire, and the fire consumed them. The fire did not consume their priestly garments. Uh, they were carried out in those garments. And then uh, Moses called the relatives of Aaron and eventually spoke to two of Aaron's sons, and he told them not to mourn. This was, uh, this was not... Uh, a, a set of deaths to be mourned, but rather an, a, a clear object lesson from the Lord from which they were to learn. And uh, Aaron's role here is silence. Verse 8, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now, we will interject here for just a moment some comments before turning to the big issue of worship as is revealed in this passage. You will see that at this point, further regulations about the priesthood are given in the aftermath of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, this includes staying away from strong drink, uh, the priest, in order to fulfill that responsibility. Something else that's embedded here you might not notice is the role of teaching the law. And uh, this will come up again in Malachi. And, and when we were together last, we looked at that Malachi passage. Uh, but we, we tend to think of the Levitical priesthood priesting but not teaching. But clearly, the Levitical priesthood was given a teaching role, and it is right here. You see this assignment in the very text we just read. Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithmar, his surviving sons, take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due, that's the, the, the priest's portion, and your sons do from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. It's interesting, Moses there points out that what he is saying is what was commanded, as if, as if to affirm the distinction between what's commanded and what is not commanded. 
He continues in verse 16, Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy, again, the highest word, and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not bought into the inner part of the sanctuary, you certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuaries I commanded. Now remember, Aaron's been silent. So the crucial thing is that in the next verse, Aaron speaks. Moses had castigated him for not eating. And Aaron said to Moses in verse 19, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offerings before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today... Would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. So basically Aaron is saying, my lack of eating was not disobedience, it was humility. Given the circumstances, two of his sons consumed by fire, the judgment of the Lord upon him, his uh, humility was such that he did not take of the offering and eat. And Moses, hearing that this was humility, not disobedience, in this one case understood and approved. There's just so much in this passage. It's shocking to us. Just think, by the way, of the chronology. I think John Currid's exactly right when he points out that in a passage like this, what you see is the frightening reality that the greatest spiritual highs are often followed by the most incredible disobedience. The classic example of this is Genesis chapter 3 following, you do the math, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. How could this happen so quickly? So quickly after the glory of creation. So quickly after Adam and Eve are put in the garden. So quickly after they have the experience of talking with God and communing with him in the garden in the cool of the day. How fast, how, how could it be so fast that sin comes as it does? In a similar way, Noah, having built the ark for rescue from God's judgment by the Lord's own instruction and having been obedient in the building of the ark and obedient in filling the ark with everything the Lord had commanded and then obedient through the 40 days and 40 nights and then obedient up until the landing of the ark on dry land. And then his response is to get drunk and naked. The Bible keeps us from thinking that we have any ability to keep ourselves righteous. The Bible pierces through all of our pretensions about how good we have become at handling these things. The Bible makes clear that the very people who had been chosen for such important roles in salvation history, including Aaron in this case, Aaron's sons are a disaster at the start. Now, thankfully, he had other sons, which is why Israel continued with the Aaronic priesthood. But it's just a very humbling realization. But when we were together last, I said what we would look at today in light of this passage is the question of worship. Now, as you will note, what Nadab and Abihu were presiding over is not yet called worship. But it is. it is. It is worship. It is the service of God. It is, it is what honors God, commanded by God, performed by God's people, in this case, priests who are given that assignment, and it is according to God's word. The big issue there is according to God's word. If you look across the world today, you see that there's very little definition of worship. You, you will see almost anything done in the name of Christian worship. You'll go to many churches, including many churches, that that are filled with people who clearly consider themselves conservative, biblical, evangelical Christians, and uh, the services are unpredictable at times. Uh, it, it seems to be that much of worship these days is defined by music. And uh, over the course of the last 20 years, we've seen churches do everything from bring in smoke machines and lights and, uh, and, and music. And, 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 the average Protestant church, and I use Protestant uh, advisedly here because most of them don't even know they are. 
But in the, in the average non-Catholic church, it's a consumer-driven worship that just brings in elements of what is done in the world and it's done in the church. There's a lot for us to consider here, and I think this could lead to some good discussions. So we'll try to save time this morning uh, for some of that uh, discussion. But the reality is that most worship these days is regulated only by will and taste. By congregational will and taste. And so, I mean, it's, it's honestly the case that in many churches, they will try just about anything. And, and whatever happens in the larger musical, entertainment, concert world uh, makes its way into many churches. Or, or it works the other way from, a, a, you might say, a very low culture stream uh, where you just have uh, folk music or whatever else that just works its way in. One of the things we're going to talk about this morning are controversies over music and worship. Uh, in evangelical churches, including in, say, Southern Baptist churches over the course of the last several years, because over the course of the last 100 years, there has been an absolute transformation of what would be considered appropriate music or hymnody uh, or elements of worship. Nadab and Abihu are consumed by the Lord's fire because they burned strange, you could say unauthorized fire on the altar. Now the fire on the altar was authorized, but only as God authorized it. And, and it is unclear to us, if we're honest, exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. It, might, it'll be, it would be uh, satisfying to us intellectually perhaps even urgently, uh, to know exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. There, there are different theories. One of them has to do with uh, the particular role of incense. One of them has to do with uh, the, the sequencing. Another has to do with the fact that they may have been inebriated. Uh, and you say, where does that come from? Well, just remember that immediately after they die and God starts speaking to Aaron and to Aaron's sons, uh, who survive, he, he talks about not drinking strong drink. So was that what was going on there? We really don't know. It's probably, it's probably safe to say that whatever they did would have been recognized by anyone watching as something that violated God's intention and command. Now, what they may have done it could have been something that was not prohibited, but was unauthorized. That turns out to be a crucial distinction throughout church history. In other words, there are two different theories of how the church may err in worship. One of them is by what we might call sins of omission, and the other by sins of commission. Is, is it that we must do all that is commanded and nothing that is not commanded, or is it that we can't do anything except that which is commanded, period? But we'll get to that in just a moment. It's important for us to recognize that a lot of the debates we're having right now about worship and the conversation we're having about worship in the Christian church, and so we are fast-forwarding from Nadab and Abihu to, say, the Reformation that a lot of the controversies over worship are so distant from us, we don't understand even why we do some of the things that we do. So I thought it might be useful this morning to talk about uh, the history of Christian worship in such a way that we, we might understand a conversation about what regulates worship by, by looking backwards. Now, as we go back to the book of Acts, we find what would be defined as primitive or apostolic Christian worship. And and what we have here are the elements of worship that are given and the, the, uh, the context of, of, of worship. But we don't have a worship service per se. We have preaching from the early church, and we have reference to congregational meetings. That remember Eutychus, um, and who fell out of the window during the preaching? And, and we, we have references to how the church is to be ordered and how the teachers are to be recognized and how they are to be commissioned. We are told that God's people, when gathered for worship, are to see preaching as the central act of Christian worship. That's very, very clear in the New Testament. But we're also to be involved in prayer 
Uh, and as Colossians makes clear, in encouraging one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, there is also a, a rightful command concerning what we would call an offering, uh, and there's plenty of apostolic evidence for that in the New Testament. But you know how all of that comes together is difficult to understand. You, there is no New Testament service of worship. There are New Testament parts of worship. There's a New Testament uh, a clear conception of worship. But we don't have in the book of Acts uh, any, anything equivalent to this. It, 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 you say it might be nice if we had it. Remember the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us we have everything we need. So God did not intend for us to have this, rather the guiding principles. The Reformation, uh, you know, I, I went too fast there, let me go back. Between apostolic Christianity and what we would know as Christendom or medieval Christendom, you had the experience of the early church, the patristic era, that is to say the fathers, uh, the first several centuries. Now remember that during the first uh, of, of those centuries, in the earliest period, before Constantine uh, authorized Christianity and then later made it the, the, the religion of the empire, uh, Christian worship was illicit. It was illegal. It, it was effectively a capital crime, it, depending upon local observation. It was a, a deadly serious business. But the church had no social recognition, no social standing, so it had no right to meet. And so you're really looking at house churches and... Uh, and, and you're, you're looking at a persecuted Christian uh, minority worshiping according to Scripture in what would be called primitive Christianity and primitive worship. Now, hold that thought. Hold that thought because that's a theme that's going to come up in the 19th century in our world in a big way. After the uh, period of that, that primitive era, in the, uh, the earliest centuries came the Roman centuries. And uh, this is the period, and I would really date this from, say, the fourth century onward, in which you had Christianity as a public religion, as it was recognized. It was, it was then that you have the emergence of churches and places of worship and uh, congregations and, of course, eventually of bishops uh, in, in, in the church as well as a priesthood. And so... We can see all of this develop, and you see liturgies. You see the worship liturgies of these churches develop. Again, quite simple, and uh, as is the case with, uh, for instance, Augustine and Hippo, uh, you see very clear emphasis upon the preaching of the word as central, but there are other elements, and, and what begins to creep into uh, even earliest Christianity is a focus upon the Lord's Supper as a transformation into something like a mass and, and with confusions there. But that really becomes most characteristic of medieval Christianity. And medieval Christianity uh, was the Roman church uh, extended into what was declared to be the new Rome or the new Roman Empire, which would eventually be represented by historical developments such as the Holy Roman Empire. So there was continuity. So medieval European civilization is claiming continuity with, with Rome. And uh, you also had the development of throne and altar together. So there's, there's no separation of any sector of society. It's a unitary society. Throne, monarch, emperor, king, uh, church, pope, bishops, and, uh, and all the rest in one concerted power class, uh, the union of throne and altar, as we say. And during that period, worship became highly priestly. And that's the most important thing for us to recognize. It is the priestly nature of worship in the transformation of the medieval era. In order to understand that, let's just make clear that the congregation's role was basically to be there and to receive, insofar as they passively received, uh, the Mass, Communion, the Eucharist. The main thing that the congregation did uh, could be reduced to the words uh, sitting and standing. That's not even true, really, because there was very little sitting. It would be standing or kneeling. 
if, you, if you go in most of the, uh, the great cathedrals of Christendom, uh, if there are chairs, those chairs are very modern. They were brought in in the modern era. Uh, the people would stand uh, there in the nave of the church and, uh, and in the great hall. The priests would do their work separated from the congregation by a screen. And so the altar would be where the priests would do the, the, perform the mass. There, of course, would be prayers. There would be liturgical readings and things like that. But a lot of that would have been unintelligible to the congregation. The congregation would have heard murmurings and words. There would have been music, but the music would have been uh, conducted by choirs. And those choirs, by the way, would have been entirely male and, uh, and, and dominated by boy choirs. And so you'd be hearing the little trebles and sopranos as they would be singing uh, in Latin the accompanying music to the mass. And, and so you might say that the choir boys are about the only layperson, so to speak, whose voices are heard uh, in the course of the, of the service of worship. So it's a spectacle. It is something to be seen. Uh, it is a mystery. Hoc es uh, corpus uh, est, uh, the, 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 the words of the, uh, of the institution, this is my body. That's where hocus pocus comes from, uh, just because the, the, the congregation was hearing mumbling from behind the screen. They weren't even actually seeing what was happening. They were entirely passive recipients of the Mass. They came to the Mass because they believed they needed the sacramental grace of the Mass, and, uh, and so they received the, uh, the element given to them, the, the bread at the time, and uh, then they, they went on, and that, that, that was worship. It was, it was standing, it was kneeling, it was listening in a mumbling sort of way. Uh, it was getting to the altar in order to receive the host, and it was leaving. And that was Christian worship. Now, during that period of medieval worship, there are, there are a lot of cultural artifacts that emerge. You have the Gregorian chant. Uh, you might think that's an acquired taste. Uh, it's a very, very important period of music and of church music. Uh, Gregorian chant is, uh, is, is very, very interesting just as a, a, a musical form. You also had different forms of music and uh, polyphonic music where you had different voices singing different parts. Uh, you had that contrasted with plain song, which is uh, what you heard from a lot of the monks in terms of, of their worship and, and daily acts of devotion, in which it wasn't exactly a chant. And it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't polyphonic. There weren't parts. It was just this kind of monotone voice uh, that was sung. The early church, by the way, generally fiercely opposed the use of instruments so that the only instrument heard was the human voice. There is a whole host of issues that will explode in the Reformation. But, uh, but the, the use of instruments was generally associated with paganism. And, and so for that reason, there, there, were, there was no use of, uh, of instruments. Uh, that's not universal. I mean, the, the church grew, and different things happened different where, different places, different where. This, that, that ought to be a word. Uh, in different places. But the, the fact is that the rule and uh, the standard was non-instrumental singing. But then again, it was also non-congregational singing after the, uh, the period of primitive Christianity and medieval Christendom. Well, just to fast forward as we're thinking about the historical background for a moment, we need to get to the Reformation. And in the Reformation, you have the dawning realization on the part of the magisterial reformers like Luther that worship is going to have to be transformed by the Word of God. But that had to come with the recognition that the worship that is taking place now is not the worship that is commanded by Scripture. Something is horribly missing. The most important thing that was missing is the centrality of the word, because in medieval Christendom, 
preaching just largely disappeared. Now, it didn't entirely disappear, but preaching as we would think of it in terms of the exposition of Scripture to the congregation either disappeared or was such a minor issue, we actually don't even know much about it. Luther, you'll remember, in the 95 Theses, date that to 1517, he was calling for a reform of the church. And a reform of worship or the reform of liturgy was at least a part of his intention. He wasn't intending to break from the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't intending to repudiate the Mass. He was intending to bring biblical gospel correctives to the church, to its practice, uh, to its hierarchy, uh, especially addressed at abuses such as uh, indulgences and the sale of indulgences, but also extending to other things. Luther had been thinking about these. I mean, there's 95 theses, not five. Luther had been thinking about this for a long time. But Luther clearly, in the 15-teens, does not intend to break from the Roman Catholic Church. He honestly, if naively, thought that he could get the attention of the Pope. He wrote directly to the Pope. And the Pope would understand the need for reform and, and, and would reform. And, and by the way, one of Luther's confidences there is that there had been a spirit of reform that had emerged in medieval Christianity in different forms. You can go back and look and see where there had been reform movements. None of them had, had gotten much of anywhere, but Luther seems to think now's right the time to try to, to bring these reforms in the church. Luther was wrong. Uh, the church responded instead in a defensive way, and eventually, fast-forwarding through Reformation history, two things happen. Number one, the Roman Catholic magisterium, the, headed by the Pope, uh, decides Luther has to go. Luther's an enemy of the church. By the time the, uh, the, the papal bull expelling, excommunicating Luther would come, uh, it was entitled, you may remember, Exerge Domine. Rise up, O God. And the next words are, a wild boar has, invited, has invaded your vineyard. And so Luther is the wild boar who has invaded the vineyard. He needs, he needs to be cast out. He's the enemy of the church. That, the one thing that happened, the first, was the Roman Catholic Church hardening its position. The other thing that happened is that Luther is continuously being driven to more biblical conclusions by argument. So when, when the 95 Theses were released, Luther did not yet teach justification by faith alone. He didn't yet teach anything like the authority of Scripture alone. He, he, he was headed in that direction, whether he knew it or not, but it was actually in the disputes of the Reformation, he had no choice but to get where he got. In other words, on the authority of Scripture, it was, he was continuously asked, on what authority do you... Do you teach this? On what authority do you correct this? On what authority do you say the truth is X rather than Y? And, uh, and Luther gets further and further into seeing that all he has is the Bible. And so by the time at the Diet of Worms, he says, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. And he speaks of scripture and plain reason. He says, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason. And you say, well, it's putting reason on the same category of scripture. No, he meant it in the sense that Reason is the apprehension of Scripture. In other words, it's, it's how he comes to understand Scripture, which Luther at this point, again, sola scriptura, now applies. And the same thing is true with sola fide, sola gratia, all, all the solas of the Reformation came by consequence of starting an argument and then having to finish it. But in worship, all of a sudden, the Reformers are in a position where they recognize we're going to have to undo all of this, basically. Rethink all of this. And because the Reformation, as we think of it, the Magisterial Reformation in the 16th century, uh, we would trace rightly to Wittenberg. We look first to Wittenberg and see what took place. And, and so you have a positive and a negative dynamic going on. And I, I, I hope, hope this is interesting and, and makes sense. The positive dynamic is, what are the things we need to be doing that we haven't been doing in worship. The negative is, what are the things we're doing we need to stop doing? And, and so Luther didn't come up with like a commission for the reformation of worship. He instead was preaching. He is trying to pastor. He is trying to preach the word. He's, he's looking to the word. And so it's incremental with Luther. It has to be incremental, right? He doesn't have a... a, a 
a handbook of Reformation worship. He's living it. He's just trying to figure out. So some things have to go. One of the things that had to go was the Mass. So Protestant worship, worship performed by the Word, cannot have the Mass. It's not just that the Mass needs to be reduced in its scope. It can't be a Mass. And Luther will come to describe what he calls the bloody abhorrence of the Mass. The claim that this is the very body and blood of Christ in a re-crucifixion. Luther says that is unbiblical. It is not only something that's not found in Scripture, something that was refuted in Scripture. For Christ died once for all. His body is now raised, resurrected. And, uh, and look, the, the reformers got to different positions. Luther got to the centrality of preaching. And, and thus, with Lutheranism, you have, the, you have the rise of the centrality of the pulpit. The preaching of the Word becomes the center of Christian worship. If you were to walk in to a church in, say, the 15 teens, and then walk into that same church in Saxony, uh, in the, say, 1580s, the first thing you would notice is that uh, worship is now congregational. The congregation is singing, and it is centered in preaching. There's a sermon. The, the, the Bible is read, and the Bible is explained. It's proclaimed. And uh, one of my favorite historical sections, uh, when, I, when I talk about the Lutheran Reformation, one of my favorite quotes uh, comes from an historian who's not a believer, who says one of the great historical questions of all time is to explain how people who had been alive in the beginning and are still alive at the end have come to the position where they knew no Christian preaching in the beginning of their lives and then expected and demanded it every single service by the end of their lives. Isn't that a sweet question asked by an unbelieving historian? You know, how did that happen? This is one century, and we're, we're, we're 16 centuries into this story. How, how now do people who never heard preaching demand it? They don't think anything is, they don't think worship has happened until worship. And then hymnody. You remember Luther wrote hymns, most famously, Ein Feste Berg, a, a, a Mighty Fortress. Luther believed that hymnody was the congregation singing and preaching. So the congregation is singing and preaching. In medieval worship, remember, the choir sang, the congregation didn't. There was no effort to teach congregations hymns. Uh, the hymns were in Latin, so again, the, the vernacular, just had to walk our way through this. And I love ancient plain song. I love Gregorian chant. I love it aesthetically. Even I like it as, as, as an historian, historically, I, 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 I love, I mean, you can find Gregorian chants of the Nicene Creed and things like that that are just, just beautiful, but not in worship. No, not, not without the congregation singing, not certainly without the congregation understanding. And so you have the birth of Reformation hymnody that just explodes. And, and these hymns are to be sung by the congregation. And Luther says in good German, they are to be sung lustily. They are to be sung from the heart. They are to be sung with joy. The congregation should be heard all the way from the little to the old, they should, the congregation should be heard. There may be a choir, but the choir is to lead the congregation in its singing, not to substitute for the congregation in its singing. Uh, the other thing that Luther, you know, he, he, Luther was very much aware of the devil, of Satan, and he said, you know, a part of what we have to do in Christian worship is to press back on the devil, and you press back by doing what he hates, and what he hates is the preaching of the word and the singing of gospel truth. And so he would say, sing to the devil's irritation, drive him out. And I love that, actually. I think that's a very biblical understanding of what it is that we are to do. Luther, however, retained certain elements of, uh, uh, of what you might call medieval worship or Catholic worship. He, he allowed the ministers to wear vestments um, the uh, practice of confession, not as a sacrament, but as a practice, uh, continued in at least some places. And, uh, and, and again, there's, there are a lot of complicating factors. Reform uh, the Reformation did not come with the turn of a switch. The, the Reformation came through fighting, trial, error, struggle with Scripture, political battles, uh, historical arguments, disputations, trying to figure these things out. But we, just for the sake of time, have to fast forward to Geneva. And the, John Calvin and the Reformed 
church in Geneva is more radical than Luther's Wittenberg. In fact, frankly, more radical than the Germans. Uh, there, there were just elements that continued, uh, you know, even theologically, the distinction between real presence and spiritual presence that, that became very much a part of Protestant uh, discussion. But the point is that in Geneva, they felt that Wittenberg hadn't gone far enough. You know, that, leave it to the Saxons. They'll, they'll retain something. Uh, the Swiss, far more radical. And so Calvin orders worship in Geneva down to the bare essentials of worship. The uh, order of the service of Geneva is, by the way, extremely close to the order that you would find right here today. This is, this is directly derivative of the Genevan Reformation. Now, there are things we do that would be an abhorrence uh, there to Calvin and Geneva. Uh, those instruments over there, uh, Calvin would probably light a fire and burn them on them. <laughs> uh, Luther believed that Reformation could take place in existing buildings, because remember these buildings are teaching themselves in, in, in these buildings. And so in most Lutheran areas, the, the buildings were largely unchanged. Uh, the, the screens were removed, obviously. You had a, the, the screens for the priestly ministrations, all, that, all that's gone. But the altar remained often in a central place, and the glass could remain, all the stained glass. In the Calvinist Reformation, the stained glass had to go. I mean, all that medieval beautiful glass just had to go, because we're here for the word to teach, not the windows to teach. And besides that, the windows are breaking the commandment against representations of the divine. It's too much risk, and people are looking at them. Don't look at that! crash it up. Calvin would walk in here and say that we have decorated windows, which is not a good idea, but, uh, but what we have here is actually not stained glass in the classical sense, because stained glass in the classical sense depicts people, depicts biblical scenes. Uh, this is kind of quasi-Puritan. No, Puritans wouldn't like it either. It's got color. Uh, that's a distraction. In other words, it's meant to be pretty, but you know, our, we can just find satisfaction in the fact that our stained glass is pretty, but not too pretty. <laughs> All right, so there it is. So it, it can stay. Uh, in Geneva, the glass had to go. The organ had to go. Uh, and so in the, in the Genevan Reformation, there was a different principle. So Scripture is to regulate worship. Both the Lutherans and the, the Calvinists were absolutely convinced that Scripture had to regulate worship. But the question is, how? How, how does that happen? Because it's easy for to say that. But basically it came down to the Lutherans deciding that if it were not forbidden by Scripture or if it were not an obstacle to what was required by Scripture, then it can stay. In other words, the, the minister wearing investment doesn't, doesn't, doesn't keep the preaching of the word from happening. There's nothing in the scripture that says you can't do it, so just leave it. You don't need that controversy. On the other hand, private masses or private services, and if you have a private service, it tends to a mass. Just understand that. That's why we don't have private services. Because you, the private services implied the mass, and that's why you had the private altars and the homes and the rich people and all the rest. No, that, that had to go. But, but other, other things could stay. Uh, in, in Calvin's Geneva, it's far more rigorous. It was, it was sola scriptura pointed back to uh, scripture having to authorize. So in the Calvinist Reformation, the regulative principle of worship emerged in this way. What is done in Christian worship must be explicitly commanded in God's word. So in other words, that's all that happens. Nothing not explicitly commanded in God's word is licit. So no choir, There's the, the, the choir, and the, that means also New Testament because that gets into some interesting biblical theology questions because in the Old Testament you have David dancing before the Lord, naked by the way, that's a different thing. Uh, you have, uh, you have uh, instruments, you have cymbals, you have brass, you have different things, you have horns and shofars. 
But the, the Genevan reformers would have said, yes, but, but you have none of that in the New Testament. There's absolutely no reference to any of that in the New Testament. And so the New Testament being, after all, the fulfillment of the Old Testament means that those things have passed away, like many forms and shadows, they, they pass away. The centrality of the Word is now what uh, orders and congregational singing but then that raises a host of issues. So what are you saying? It's uh, according to, to Paul and Colossians, it's psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, how do you define those three things? Um, anything can be a spiritual song, right? Um, but uh, Calvin and the, the Genevan tradition basically says, whatever those things are, they should be found in Scripture. So text of Scripture put to music. But mostly psalms. Mostly it's a psalter. So the Genevan psalter, singing the, the psalms put to meter, uh, became the, uh, the basic congregational song. The Reformed world includes now some psalter-only uh, congregations. They wouldn't sing hymns. They would not sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. They would not sing, you know, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. They will, they will, they will sing only uh, the, the, the psalter. Or... Uh, and, and that's what's safe. And then they will say, you know, that we, we can put this biblical text to, to song, but very little of that generally ever takes place because it's, it's the psalms that become most important. The Genevan Reformation then meant windows out, organs gone. The regulative principle defined as worship limited to what is explicitly commanded by God in Scripture. And so you could have the gathering prayer, you could have uh, the offertory, that is in the offering, you, you, giving, you, you would have prayer, and those prayers would become distinct in terms of prayers of gathering and prayers of, of uh, confession of sin, uh, intercessory prayers, all these can become, because they're clearly authorized in Scripture, the singing so it's basically prayer, singing, and preaching. That's basically it. You know, there are different elements to that, but that, that, that's basically it. And uh, as you look at the Genevan liturgy, or, I mean, frankly, it's prayers, the reading of Scripture, uh, the, the preaching of Scripture, and singing. Those are basically the four things we do. And, and you know, add to that giving in terms of, of the, uh, the giving of the offertory. That, that's basically it. Basically it. Now, because the Reformation was largely territorial from the 16th century on, at least for a long time, we have to fast forward to England, where we, our tradition, so we are speaking here, we're speaking English, first of all, we're a part of the English-speaking world, and we are direct descendants of the English-speaking Reformation. Now, I wish I could spend hours talking about this, and I do this in other lectures, because just the, the transformation of worship in the English Reformation is absolutely fascinating. And by the way, it's not absolutely linear. It goes this way and then back. But remember that the Puritans were frustrated that the English Reformation had not gone far enough. The earliest English Reformation was a very radical Reformation. And by that, I really don't mean Henry VIII because he didn't mean to bring a Reformation. Henry VIII was... He may have become more convinced of the necessity of a Reformation, but you cannot remove Henry VIII from his desire to get the assets of the monasteries by confiscating the monasteries, and obviously the, the whole issue of the legitimacy of his marriage. Uh, you, you can't separate Luther, uh, excuse me, uh, Henry VIII and all that. But his son, uh, his son Edward VI, a very different thing. The boy king was an ardent reformer. Uh, by the way, one of my favorite places to go when I get to take Christians to England is uh, the, the great chapel uh, at Windsor Castle, St. George's Chapel. And uh, in that chapel, John Knox preached a sermon to Edward VI with Edward VI sitting there. The boy king is sitting there. The reigning monarch is sitting there. And John Knox, who feared nobody, came. And he castigated the boy king 
for his failure to press forward on the Reformation by allowing priests to bow to the, to the altar. Now, if priests can bow to the altar, they're bowing to Christ. So that, it, it, that's the thing. They're bowing to Christ. So they bow. <clears throat> they bow because it's believed in real presence that Christ is there in the element. And so they're bowing to Christ. And so uh, John Knox told Edward VI that he lacked the courage to bring Reformation. And Edward VI had written to Calvin saying, Sir, how shall I reform my kingdom? And so he intended to bring a very radical reformation. But just that you think the courage of John Knox, staring down the king and, and telling him that he's kind of a coward, the teenage coward. And by teenager, I mean really early teenager, like 13 years old. He's a coward for not uh, forcing the priest no longer to genuflect. It's, it's just, this is how it happens. So you got politics, you got military events you've got and the military events by the way have to do with the threat of the spanish armada and that of course you and and after edward comes bloody mary and the the attempted restoration of catholicism the protestant martyrs the, and again the, the the church's worship becomes all the more confused all the more uh, combated and then comes elizabeth and i have to fast forward the elizabethan settlement was a little of this a little of that a church that's definitely not Catholic, does not recognize the Catholic uh, Pope, and is severed from Rome, and with herself, by the way, as the supreme governor. And, uh, and yet, you got a little of this, a little of that. But the debates came down to, what can the priests wear? What can they not wear? What can the architecture allow? What does it not allow? And just remember, fast forward, by the time you even get to Oliver Cromwell and the Roundheads, they're convinced in his new Puritan army that, that the Elizabethan settlement didn't go far enough, so that's why they practice defenestration. You say, what's that? That's knocking the windows out. So they would go into the medieval churches, and so a lot, of, a lot of the glass you see in, in medieval churches as you go to England today is really more Victorian or, uh, or Hanoveran. And, and that's because it's probably not anywhere near as old as the building because if Cromwell and his roundheads got to it, the, well, that got knocked out. But the, the, the Anglican Reformation came to what was called the normative principle. Okay, so this is the thing. The Reformed Church holds to the regulative principle. Only those things commanded may be done. The Anglican Church came to the normative principle. And the normative principle says, if the Bible, basically, if the Bible doesn't say you can't do it, you can do it. Now, that didn't mean that they were bringing in smoke machines and tambourines. Uh, but it did mean that you could have a, a, a castable on, you could have a stole on, you could look like a priest or, or not. You know, it just, in other words, it was, uh, and, and, and so this is where you also have this enormous category in Anglicanism of adiaphora, the things indifferent. Yeah, you can do it, you cannot do it. It's not commanded, it's not, it's not forbidden. So the normative principle is Anglican. The Puritans said no to that, saying yes to Geneva, Frustrated that the Church of England wasn't going far enough. And so the nonconformist tradition that comes out of Puritanism is heavily, heavily invested in trying to recover that Reformation worship. And so just fast-forwarding with time escaping us, that's basically the Presbyterians and the English-speaking Reformed churches and, and us, uh, the Baptists, coming out of English separatism. And so the early Baptists would have been very Puritan in, uh, in applying the regulative principle. Our church intends to be Puritan in the application of the regulative principle. We do only that which is commanded in Scripture. But that raises another distinction, and I'm going I'm to press through this, and it's a distinction between elements and circumstances. Okay, so this is your final exam. You better write that down. One day you're going to have to know elements and circumstances. So you have the normative principle and the regulative principle. The normative principle, let's just say, is Anglican. The regulative principle is Reformed. And then among the Reformed, you have the distinction between elements and circumstances. Because the elements of worship are non-negotiable. The circumstances are negotiable. So an element of worship would be preaching. An element of worship would be the reading of God's Word. It would be prayer. The circumstance would be, what time do you meet? 
Meeting on the Lord's day is commanded by Scripture. There's no time given. So an element is mandatory. A circumstance is negotiable. It's, it's adiaphora. It's as close as we get to adiaphora. Uh, so during most of, uh, 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 well, let's put it this way. The Reformation only happened in the context of Christendom, so the Lord's Day was already a cultural institution. But Reformation worship has to take into account the fact that Reformed churches exist where there is no cultural Lord's Day. There is no Sabbatarianism. And thus, like in the book of Acts with Eutychus, the church may be meeting at night rather than in the morning. 11 o'clock or thereabouts on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning is not an element. It's a circumstance. Do you have pews, uh, chairs? And then that's a circumstance. That's not an element. Uh, all kinds of things. But then you'll notice that, the, so the element is singing, and it's uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But what songs can you sing? In other words, having a regulative principle rather than a normative principle, and making the necessary and very helpful distinction between elements and circumstances, you still have a lot of things you've got to figure out. What do you do and what do you not do? And this is why congregations still have these discussions. It's why we still have these discussions. I am driven by Scripture to the Reformed understanding. Uh, I am not driven as far as Calvin. I'm not driven as far as the radical Puritans. And that's true for all of us, evidently, because there are guitars up there. Uh, th this gets down to what we can discuss even next week, which is how these things are applied. How do you know that this song should be sung rather than that song? How do you define a hymn? Uh, time's fleeting, but I hope this has been helpful and interesting, even as we prepare for worship this morning. And th there are interesting questions we still have to, to grapple with. But the bottom line is, we dare not bring strange fire to the altar. Here in Leviticus chapter 10, we are told that we had better get this right because life and death are on the line. That's a good sobering reminder. Thank you for gathering this morning. Lord willing, we'll be back next Sunday to continue this conversation and to continue further into the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare for worship, may we worship you in spirit and in truth, for such are the worshipers you are seeking. Father, we would be those worshipers today. It will be by your grace and to your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.